1: Radio Westeros, Episode 50, The Beggar King. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere, and today I'm bringing you an episode all about Viserys Targaryen. We'll begin this episode with a look at the events of Prince Viserys' early life and a little speculation on how well he actually knew his father, followed by an analysis of his experience as a child in the midst of Robert's Rebellion. Next, we'll follow Viserys and his sister into exile, examining their time in Braavos and what happened to them in the years that followed. Then, we'll catch up on the Beggar King as we're introduced to him in A Game of Thrones and follow his decline as he becomes Calregat and dies in Ves Dothrak. We'll wrap it up with an analysis of his death and his role in the greater story, Usual readings and an unusual advert from Essos will complete the episode. Before we get started, I want to take a minute for a couple of announcements. First, we realize it's been a while since you last heard Yoke Boy on these airwaves as my co-host, and I want to thank everyone who's asked after him during this time and let you all know that while he's still working through the bureaucracy of immigration, he and I are both eagerly awaiting the day that he can rejoin us. And soon, we hope. Second, a milestone. This is episode number 50. Five and a half years ago, we never could have foreseen this journey. And since this is reaching your ears during the week of Thanksgiving in America, we want to thank each and every one of you for your support along the way. We couldn't have reached this place without you. For all those of you who have listened, shared, commented, and subscribed during this journey, Thank you so much, and special thanks goes to our patrons whose support keeps us afloat and who gain special perks for themselves in exchange, like exclusive episodes, early access, and a dedicated ad-free RSS feed. Check out our campaign at Patreon.com/RadioWesteros for details if you'd like to join this amazing group of people. And speaking of amazing patrons, now's the time we thank our Flaming Lightbringer patron T.J. Harrington. Our Dragonsteel Patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass Patrons, Maltude, Kelly, Laura, Daniel, John Wargarian, Pepper, Whitney, and Sister Winter. Thanks so much, everyone. We appreciate you, and we wish all of you a happy Thanksgiving. And now, it's time to get started with The Beggar King. Prince Viserys born in 276 A.C., was small but robust and as beautiful a child as King's Landing had ever seen. Viserys Targaryen was born in 276 A.C. to Queen Rhaella and King Aerys II Targaryen, 17 years after the birth of his elder brother Rhaegar. In those 17 years, Queen Rhaella had suffered through a total of eight miscarriages, stillbirths, and premature infant deaths, and her husband's growing paranoia. King Ares, destined to be known in the history books as the Mad King, was not entirely unstable during those years, but the string of personal tragedies led to suspicion and erratic behavior on his part that may well have presaged his later volatility. Aerys may not have been obviously mad, but even in the early years of his reign, he was prone to grandiose ideas and arrogance that likely hinted at trouble to come with his disposition. He was certainly never what one would call steady and sensible, which was unfortunate since following the tumult of generations of conflict with their blackfire cousins and a string of tragedies during the reign of Aegon V, House Targaryen had been reduced to Aerys and his sister wife Rhaella. And whatever children they might produce. And it's just possible that the strain of that responsibility may have told against King Ares's fragile mental health. Certainly, his behavior towards his wife following several miscarriages and stillbirths seemed paranoid, which is a condition that would come to define the king in the years to come. Following the death of the infant prince Daron, born from the queen's fourth pregnancy following Rhaegar's birth, The king decided that his wife must be unfaithful and that their tragedies were a judgment of the gods. He decreed that she must be confined to Magor's holdfast and attended day and night by two septas to ensure her fidelity. And yet, the pattern of tragedies continued. Another miscarriage, a stillbirth, and two more infant deaths would follow, and now the king had to seek elsewhere for blame. The wet nurse for Prince Jehari's, who was born of Raella's ninth pregnancy and lived only a few short months, was accused of poisoning the babe and executed. Then the king decided his own mistress was the culprit, and she was likewise executed. But the king eventually reached the conclusion that his own numerous infidelities may have been to blame, and after a lengthy fast and walk of repentance in 275 AC, he declared that henceforth he would be faithful to his marriage vows. His convictions seemed to be supported by the birth of the healthy Prince Viserys the following year, But Aerys' frame of mind was now anything but healthy. Instead of rejoicing with the rest of his court, the king became more paranoid than ever. He ordered Kingsguard to stay with the baby day and night and would allow no one to touch him without his leave. Even the queen could not be alone with him, and the gifts that were sent to the new prince from across the realm were all burned, lest any of them be cursed. A wet nurse for the prince was a necessity when the queen's milk dried up, but the king insisted that his own taster must suck from her breasts before she fed the child to keep him safe from poison. As the months went by following his birth, both queen and baby were kept under close confinement in the Red Keep, even when the Hand Tywin Lannister held the great tourney at Lannispor in honor of the prince's birth. At this point, the relationship between Aerys and his hand had grown very strained. The World Book tells us, By this time it was plain to see that Aerys II Targaryen was already sliding rapidly into madness. But in the year following Viserys' birth, Lord Darklyn of Duskendale decided to take the king hostage in a bid to obtain a charter for his port city and regain some autonomy from King's Landing. During what would be six months of captivity, Ares' paranoia about his hand, his son, his wife, and just about everything else in his life grew out of control. After he was rescued by Sir Barristan Selmy, the king took refuge in the Red Keep and didn't leave it for four years. The world book tells the story of his mental condition best captivity at Duskendale had shattered whatever sanity had remained to Aerys II Targaryen. From that day forth, the king's madness reigned unchecked, growing worse with every passing year. The Darklands had dared lay hands upon his person, shoving him roughly, stripping him of his royal raiment, even daring to strike him. After his release, King Ares would no longer allow himself to be touched, even by his own servants." Uncut and unwashed, his hair grew ever longer and more tangled, whilst his fingernails lengthened and thickened into grotesque yellow talons. He forbade any blade in his presence, save the swords carried by the knights of his king's guard, sworn to protect him. And so, in these Viserys' formative years, his father's behavior spiraled out of control. While Sir Bariston would one day tell Daenerys that her mother had sheltered the child as best she could, the king's very appearance spoke to a terrifying madness, while his behavior became ever more cruel and driven by fear and paranoia. The king became more and more obsessed with dragon fire and dragons, which eventually manifested as a fascination with wildfire. By the time Prince Viserys was four years old, his father's preferred method of execution— had become burning by wildfire. Considering the overt nature of the king's appearance and some of his behaviors, we have to wonder what the young prince may have been aware of. We can only hope that as a very young child, he remained ignorant of the excitement that burning enemies caused in his father and of the late-night visits his mother endured after these events. Since the queen and her youngest son were kept in virtual seclusion and under close guard, It wouldn't be remarkable if Viserys was actually close by. Even if he was unaware of the details, his mother's fear and possible grief or anger may have been palpable to the boy. In short, no matter how hard Rayala tried, we think it's very unlikely that Viserys was completely sheltered from his father's behavior, and he must have had some awareness of the strangeness of it. If this awareness became particularly traumatic, then we have an excellent reason for the older Viserys to have repressed any number of pertinent details about his childhood from his memory. At the same time, we can assume that Viserys was being raised upon the usual diet of Targaryens aren't like other men, and like any young boy, he would have sought to emulate the behavior of the adults around him. It's easy to see how this might have been a dangerous combination of traits and experiences, or, at the very least, not the most healthy one. And in fact, Sir Barristan Selmy would one day express reservations about the youthful character of the young prince to Daenerys. As a member of the Kingsguard, Barristan must have been very close to the small royal family indeed. Prince Rhaegar by this time was living on Dragonstone with his wife, Princess Celia of Dorne, and their new daughter, Princess Rhaenys. As mentioned, the queen and Viserys were kept under guard constantly, and Sir Barristan would have been a part of that, and probably spent a lot of time observing not only the king and queen, but the young prince as well. Which certainly explains his initial reservations about Daenerys, to whom he confesses, the truth is, I wanted to watch you for a time before pledging you my sword, to make certain you were not mad as well as his caution when discussing Viserys, whom he had had plenty of opportunity to observe as a child. While a difficult or even tragic early childhood need not doom a person to madness, given a certain predisposition and what happened to his family in the next couple of years, we do think that Viserys had the deck stacked against him. However, while it's made clear that the king's relationship with his heir, Rhaegar, was unraveling in the last several years of his life, we think that here is where Rhaella must have succeeded in sheltering her youngest son, because the grown Viserys still reveres his dead elder brother as a hero. One of the instances of his apparently flawed memory comes when Danny recalls Viserys telling her of Rhaegar's prowess as a tourney knight, comparing him to the legendary Sir Arthur Dane. Barristan, as Arstan Whitebeard, would tell her, It is not my place to question the words of Prince Viserys. Later, having been corrected as to what Danny saw as her brother's rank, he would again protest, It is not meet for me to deny his grace's words. Before going on to correct the record, Rhaegar was the victor of but one tourney in his lifetime, and that was the one that changed everything for House Targaryen. If Aerys ever tried to poison his younger son's mind against the Elder, it seems not to have worked, since for Viserys, it seems that Rhaegar remained firmly in the pantheon of revered ancestors, along with their father Aerys, to be sure. On the other hand, we do know that the king's group of supporters at court in those years used his youngest son as a pawn of sorts, a useful tool as the spare heir to threaten Rhaegar with. At any proof of actual conspiring or treason on the crown prince's part, the king's camp would have suggested disinheriting Rhaegar and naming Viserys as heir in his place, with themselves as potential regents, a convenient arrangement for men who might not want to lose power in the case of the king's death, and in this political environment, rumors swirled, claiming alternately that, quote, the crown prince was planning to depose his father and seize the Iron Throne for himself, or that, quote, King Ares meant to disinherit Rhaegar and name Viserys heir in his place. Surely knowledge of any of this would have caused some cognitive dissonance in the younger son, though we don't know how this would have manifested. In the wake of Rhaegar's death, the world book refers to Viserys, not Aegon, as Aerys' heir, seemingly indicating that the king had finally made the decision to change the succession in favor of his younger son. However, coming back to Sir Barristan's exposition, it seems that even as a youth of six or seven years old, Viserys showed some signs of madness. Barristan would explain House Targaryen's mental stability, or lack of it, to Daenerys by quoting her grandfather, The Targaryens have always danced too close to madness. Your father was not the first. King Jaehaerys once told me that madness and greatness are two sides of the same coin. Every time a new Targaryen is born, he said, the gods toss a coin in the air, and the world holds its breath to see how it will land. Prince Viserys's coin, it would appear, at least in Barristan's opinion, had landed on the wrong side. Although Viserys was still very young, Barristan, who had known her family since her father was a youth himself, would tell Danny that, even as a child, your brother Viserys oft seemed to be his father's son in ways that Rhaegar never did. So it's entirely possible that Viserys exhibited early behavioral warnings, as we saw hinted at with Joffrey years later, or perhaps shared some of his father's fascinations or personality traits that, in retrospect, might have been seen as warning signs. We can't say for sure, since we have only a few characters who knew Viserys in his youth that are still living, and that fact is mainly due to the events that occurred in his seventh year. That tournament that his elder brother won at Harrenhal in the year of the fall spring sparked events that would soon consume and destroy everything the young prince had ever known. And so, in our next segment, we'll consider what it was like for Viserys in King's Landing and later on Dragonstone during Robert's Rebellion, as his family died around him and he was left, finally, and as far as he knew, the last living male of House Targaryen. Viserys was Mad Ares's son, just so. After the tourney of Harrenhal, tensions escalated quickly in King's Landing. Aerys was more paranoid than ever, and his worst fears about his eldest son had been exacerbated by the events of the tourney. The Mystery Knight's appearance and Prince Rhaegar's victory in the tournament, followed by his honoring of Lyanna Stark, all but poured gasoline on the flames of the king's madness. During these events... Prince Viserys and Queen Rhaella had remained in King's Landing, guarded by Jaime Lannister, who had been sent back to the capital following his investiture at Harrenhal. If our theory is correct, then following his own return to the capital, Ares may have learned that the Mystery Knight had been in fact Lyanna Stark and sent men to arrest her. At the same time, the promise of spring had evaporated and winter had returned to the realm. Displaying the faith he now placed in his pyromancers, Ares had them burning wildfire on the ramparts to try to magic winter away. Rhaegar was at Dragonstone with his wife for the birth of their second child, Prince Aegon, but would soon return to the Riverlands with a small group of his closest supporters, where, for whatever reason, he encountered Lyanna Stark and set in motion the events that would to quote the world of ice and fire, consume his house and kin and all those he loved and half the realm besides. Still in King's Landing, Viserys would have been in the Red Keep when Brandon Stark rode in and demanded Rhaegar come out and die. To all appearances, his elder brother had abducted Lyanna Stark and vanished, along with two of the King's Guard. While Rhaegar's true reasons may have been far more inscrutable than they appeared... It's clear from Daenerys's memories that Viserys accepted these events at their face value. She recalls that Viserys had once told her that everything that followed was her fault for being born too late. If I had been born more timely, he said, Rhaegar would have married me instead of Ilya, and it would have all come out different if Rhaegar had been happy with his wife. He would not have needed the Stark girl. Clearly, Viserys, as a child observer, had a fairly reductionist view of the events that led to his family's downfall. His apparent faith that Rhaegar would have been happily married to his sister if only he had one is a childlike romanticism that Barristan, who knew both Rhaegar and Elia, didn't share, as he would put it, "'I'm not certain it was in Rhaegar to be happy.'" Jamie Lannister fills in the gaps of what happened, telling Catelyn Stark that Brandon and his companions were all arrested for plotting the murder of the Crown Prince. Their fathers were summoned to King's Landing, and all were executed, with the inexplicable exception of Ethan Glover. Lord Rickard Stark demanded trial by combat, and so was made to face the king's champion, Fire. He was roasted in his armor, while a restrained Brandon struggled to save him, ending up strangling himself in a most gruesome manner. Could Viserys have been aware of these events? Jaime would later think that Rayla's eyes had been closed for years, but some of the facts must have filtered in. The young prince was clearly aware of the abduction and of Brandon Stark's appearance in the capital. If nothing else, he would soon become aware of what followed, Ares demanding the heads of Eddard Stark and Robert Baratheon and Jon Arryn's refusal and subsequent calling of his banners. By the time Viserys was seven years old, his father's kingdom would be embroiled in a civil war caused, as he and many others saw it, by his elder brother's abduction of a young noblewoman. In the ensuing months, the rebellion would swirl in areas far removed from the capital, the Vale, the Reach, the Stormlands, and ultimately the Riverlands. Lord Merriweather, hand at the outset, would be exiled for failing to contain it and replaced by Rhaegar's friend, John Connington. He, in turn, would be exiled after the royalist defeat at Stony Sept to be replaced by Lord Carlton Chalstead. It was around this time that Lord Commander Gerald Hightower of the Kingsguard was sent to the south to retrieve Rhaegar. While he himself mysteriously didn't return to the capital, Rhaegar did and would spend some weeks raising a new army after no reply came to his father's messages to Lord Tywin Lannister. It might very well have come as a relief to Viserys to have his brother back in the capital, seemingly taking control of the situation. But Rhaegar wasn't able to take everything in hand. Also around this time, the king commanded his pyromancers to lay caches of wildfire all over the city. According to Jaime, the king told Rosart, The traitors want my city, but I'll give them naught but ashes. Let Robert be king over charred bones and cooked meat. But Jamie also guessed this about Ares's true intent. Ares meant to have the greatest funeral pyre of them all, though, if truth be told, I do not believe he truly expected to die. Like Ares' bright fire before him, Ares thought the fire would transform him, that he would rise again, reborn as a dragon, and turn all his enemies to ash. The new hand, Carlton Chelsted became aware that Wisdom Rosart and his fellows were up to something and confronted the king. Though he tried all manner of persuasion, he was unable to sway Ares from his intentions, and he resigned his post only to be rewarded for his bravery by getting roasted alive by the man whom the king named as his successor, the pyromancer Rosart. In the meantime, Rhaegar marched north with an army that had been supplemented by 10,000 Dornishmen under the command of his wife's uncle, Prince Lewin Martell. His army was now greater in size than that of the combined Baratheon, Stark, Tully, and Arryn forces. His family remained in King's Landing, with Jaime Lannister charged with protecting the prince's wife and children who were in the Red Keep along with his parents and brother. Sir Jaime could not, alas, protect the women and children from the king. Following the burning of Lord Chelston, Ares appeared in his wife's chambers. Though their relationship had been strained for years, and they had taken to avoiding each other altogether, as we mentioned earlier, Ares would become aroused whenever he had someone burned. On this occasion, Jamie Lannister would recall Rayella's cries of pain and the reports by her maids that the next day she looked, quote, as if some beast had savaged her, clawing at her thighs and chewing at her breasts. Again, we wonder what level of awareness, if any, Viserys had of the extreme dysfunction of his parents' relationship. Whatever the case, it couldn't have been more than a handful of days later that the news of Rhaegar's defeat and death reached the capital. Ares made plans for his wife and young son, now openly named as his heir, to flee to Dragonstone. Rhaegar's wife and children weren't so lucky. The king, Convinced that Elia's uncle Lewin had betrayed him at the Trident, decreed that they would remain in King's Landing to keep Dorne loyal. And so Rhaella and Viserys, accompanied by Sir Willem Darry, the Red Keep's master-at-arms, made for Dragonstone as the rebel army under the command of Lord Eddard Stark raced down the King's Road. Unfortunately for those left behind, Lord Tywin Lannister's army of Westermen arrived first. Tywin hadn't responded to the king's previous pleas for aid, and while a wiser man, notably the Master of Whispers, Lord Varys, might have seen this non-answer for the dangerous indication of the former hand's true intentions that it was, King Ares chose to believe the best of his old friend and, at the urging of Grand Master Pycelle, ordered the gates opened to admit the lions. The resulting sack of the city and subsequent death of Ares is well known, but it's worth looking at these events through Prince Viserys' eyes to see how a child, no doubt raised on a diet of propaganda, perceived them. Daenerys would recall the stories that her brother had often told her. The midnight flight to Dragonstone, moonlight shimmering on the ship's black sails, her brother Rhaegar battling the usurper in the bloody waters of the Trident and dying for the woman he loved. The sack of King's Landing by the ones Viserys called the Usurper's Dogs, the Lord's Lannister and Stark. Princess Elia of Dorne pleading for mercy as Rhaegar's heir was ripped from her breast and murdered before her eyes. The polished skulls of the last dragons staring down sightlessly from the walls of the throne room while the Kingslayer opened father's throat with a golden sword. Viserys' memories were typically dramatized and lacking in subtlety, Jamie Lannister recalls a morning flight from the city, while Viserys adds the drama of darkness and a midnight flight. And of course, the city was truly sacked by the Lannisters, with the Stark forces only arriving later. While Loyalists may have lumped the conquering army together, it would have been widely known that Lord Tywin had not committed to either side until that moment, and that Ned Stark later quarreled with Robert over the Lannisters' actions that day. What isn't widely known is that Sir Jaime tried to end the slaughter, just as Ned Stark did when he arrived, by commanding Lord Craycall to announce the king's death and to spare all who yielded. Obviously, the exact circumstances of Jaime's murder of the king were, likewise, unknown by anyone for 15 years. But Viserys did get two details exactly right, the deaths of his father and of Rhaegar's son Aegon that left him the last male Targaryen. And so, safe for the time being on Dragonstone, Rhaella would declare Viserys king. But the queen was pregnant with what would be her third child, and it isn't known what action, if any, she took to organize a restoration effort. In Dorne, Prince Oberyn Martell would try to raise the Dornish in support of Viserys, as Tywin would later tell Tyrion, Ravens flew and Riders rode with what secret messages I never knew. But Lord John Arryn soon reached a diplomatic agreement with Oberyn's brother, Prince Doran, and that would seem to have been the end of the Dornish support for House Targaryen. Rhaella and Viserys were left on Dragonstone with their small household and even smaller guard, seemingly to await the fate the new king would decree for them. There are two interesting questions to contemplate here. The first of which is, why did no loyalists attempt to join the queen and her son at Dragonstone? House Darry and House Hightower are both stated to have been loyal, and Prince Oberyn's secret messages must have been going somewhere. As far as Dorne is concerned, the notoriously cautious Doran Martell clearly saw which way the wind was blowing and put an end to overt Dornish support of House Targaryen, and while Sir Willem Darry, the only named member of Rhaella and Viserys's guard, likely would have attempted to communicate with his family in the Riverlands, House Derry alone would have been far too small to stand against Robert's supporters. As for House Hightower, they are notoriously slow to commit to causes in spite of their professed loyalism. The one Hightower of whom we're aware was the former Lord Commander of the King's Guard, killed by Edard Stark's men in the Red Mountains of Dorne. Speaking of which, how Raella must have puzzled over what those three men, Hightower, Dane, and Went were doing in that place and why they failed to make their way to Dragonstone to support her and her son which brings us to the king's guard it's clear from Jamie's and Barriston's point of views that neither of them were willing to take the chance that Viserys had inherited the taint of madness from his father Danny would think how Barriston quote betrayed Rhaegar's memory and abandoned Viserys to live and die in exile while Jamie would think of the mad king's blood running in the boy's veins Both men chose to serve the new king, who, fortunately for them, was of a more forgiving nature than many of his predecessors. Two other Kingsguard had died at the Trident, along with Rhaegar, while the three in Dorne would have a very curious response when Ned Stark asked them the very question their queen must have been asking herself. "'Sir Willem Darius fled to Dragonstone with your queen and Prince Viserys. I thought you might have sailed with him.' Sir Willem is a good man and true, said Sir Oswell, but not of the King's Guard, Sir Gerald pointed out. The King's Guard does not flee. What Riala likely never knew is that her eldest son had almost certainly commanded those three men to stay in that spot and guard Lyanna Stark and her unborn child, a child whose claim to the Iron Throne would supersede that of Prince Viserys. Giving the explanation for Sir Gerald's curious answer the guard does not flee. We can only speculate about Rayella's state of mind in those months, and that brings us to the second question we wanted to contemplate. What were those nine months spent on Dragonstone like for the young child now called King? Again, we have only speculation, but we do get to see Dragonstone in the prologue of A Clash of Kings and catch a glimpse of the life of a child close to Viserys's age, living in the grim and remote fortress while on a war footing. Shireen Baratheon is described as sad and is plagued by dragon dreams. Viserys might certainly have been sad for the losses his family had suffered, and for all we know, the atmospheric castle may have similarly inspired in him some of those dreams his family is known for. We think it very likely that during those months Raela spent some time relating to her son a sanitized version of his father's reign. Danny would one day express, I want my people to smile when they see me ride by, the way Viserys said they smiled for my father. And Viserys could have never seen this for himself, since his father rarely left the Red Keep in his lifetime. And so we think this information came from Rayella, perhaps some memory of her own from early in her husband's reign, or perhaps something she made up entirely to give her son something to aspire to. Unfortunately for both of them, their time together would be short. Whatever their plans may have been, they would have had to have been postponed until Rayella could deliver the child she was carrying, How she must have worried, given her history of difficult childbearing and the position she and her last living child now found themselves in. As it happened, when the time came for the child to be born, a summer storm was raging in Blackwater Bay. Daenerys thinks of how it was described to her, almost certainly by her brother. They said that storm was terrible, the Targaryen fleet was smashed while it lay at anchor, and huge stone blocks were ripped from the parapets and sent hurtling into the wild waters of the Narrow Sea. Rhaella Targaryen would die during that storm as her third living child entered the world. After suffering through eleven pregnancies and through so much tragedy herself, this one ended in tragedy for her children. Danny would think how her brother Viserys had quote never forgiven her for the death of their mother, a trait the young prince shared with the new queen in King's Landing. Cersei Lannister, whose own mother had died giving birth to her brother Tyrion, similarly never forgave him for that sad event. But his mother's death would hardly be the last of the hardships that beset the young Targaryen prince Not content to let a potential rival for his newly won throne, child though he was, live in peace, Robert Baratheon had commanded his brother Stannis to build a fleet with which to attack the island fortress. As Stannis Baratheon set sail for the island that he would one day call home, the garrison on Dragonstone prepared to surrender the last living Targaryens to the conquering army. But Danny would remember again with words that must have been given to her by her elder brother one night sir william darry and four loyal men had broken into the nursery and stolen them both along with her wet nurse and set sail under cover of darkness for the safety of the bravosian coast once again Viserys was spirited out of the path of danger on a dramatic midnight flight by sea, and that second flight to Braavos would mark the beginning of a new way of life for Viserys Targaryen. As a so-called king in exile, the boy would spend the next 14 years of his life on the run, always seeking a way to reclaim the life and home he had once known. Only time would tell to what lengths he would be willing to go in order to achieve that dream. They took our home from us. He drew her into the shadows, out of sight, his fingers digging into her skin. How are we to go home? <laughs> Sir William Darry would take the Targaryen children to Bravos, where, remarkably, they were taken under the protection of the Sea Lord. And we think this can be considered remarkable in light of the background of the city of Bravos, and so a brief summary of their history and political system is in order. Bravos was founded by a group of slaves escaping from the Valyrian Empire. Part of a large convoy of ships heading to a new Valerian colony on Sothorios, this group was comprised of soldiers and guards, miners, tradespeople, household servants, and bed slaves from all over the world. Seeking a place where they could hide from the wrath of the dragon lords they were fleeing from, they found a fog-shrouded lagoon that soon became the free city of Bravos. For 111 years, Bravos was a secret city, growing into a sprawling settlement that made room for all gods, temples, and traditions of the many people who made up her population. The heavy mists and fogs for which Bravos is known shielded the city from discovery by dragon riders from above, while a semicircle of narrow mountainous islands shielded it on the seaward side. On the hundred islands that sprinkled the lagoon, the people built a city that would be ruled not by a king or prince, but by a sea lord who would be chosen by the magisters and keyholders of the city. The keyholders are the descendants of the founders of Bravos' famed iron bank, Originally an underground vault for residents to secret away their treasures, the Iron Bank eventually grew into a trading bank so huge and well-endowed that kings, archons, and merchant princes from around the world sought it out for loans and financial backing. The Iron Bank wielded so much power that they could make and unmake these people by refusing or calling in those loans. And for those who would try to cheat them... The Iron Bank could always turn to their bravosi brethren at the house of black and white. Known as the Faceless Men, the Secret Assassin's Guild of Bravos also has origins that are shrouded in mystery. Far older than Bravos itself, and possibly also arising from the Valyrian Empire, the Faceless Men found a home on Bravos where they could carry out their business in relative secrecy and promote the worship of the god of many faces, the death aspect of godhead that the Faceless Men found to be present in so many of the religions practiced in Bravos. During the first century after their founding, the Bravosi built no walls around their secret city, instead, focusing on their naval and merchant fleets. With sails and hulls painted a distinctive purple, taken from a dye made from a snail found in their waters, Bravosi ships became a common sight at trading centers, and the arsenal of Bravos became so efficient that they could produce a warship in a single day. After 111 years, the sea lord of the time, one Euthyro Zelene, sent envoys to Valyria with an offer to repay the descendants of the dragon lords from whom the original slaves had escaped for the ships that were stolen. Having ensured that no material claims could be made upon their wealth, Sea Lord Euthyro announced the unmasking of Bravos. And from that day forth, the location of Bravos would no longer be a secret, and the city itself became a cosmopolitan trading center, growing to become the richest and most powerful of the nine free cities of Essos, where slavery was not only forbidden, but held to be a great crime. And through it all, the city was presided over by a succession of sea lords who, ruled for life once chosen, but who would be replaced by whatever candidate gained the support of the city's elite after his death. In time, Bravos would be famed for many things. The Great Titan, rearing 400 feet above the sea as vessels approached the city. The Water Dancers, who dueled with narrow-pointed blades on the surface of the moon pool, chief of whom would serve as the first sword to the sea lord its many canals and islands, and the great freshwater river, an aqueduct an engineering marvel that carried drinking water to the city's residents, the Temple of the Moonsingers, greatest of Bravos's many temples, her courtesans, free women of wealth and power whose favors were sought by kings and bankers alike, and, of course, its bank and the mysterious guild of faceless men, both of which continued to grow in power." Given the origins of the city, one might well ask why a sea lord of Braavos would offer shelter and support to the last Targaryens, descendants of dragon riders, and the children of a king who had once threatened to bring the titan to his knees. To boot, there are so many questions that we wish we had answers to. Did Willem Darry himself have a connection to Braavos? Why not travel to Lys or Valantis, where Valyrian culture had survived and other Westerosi, including Targaryens, had been known to seek shelter during exile? Was there something about that particular sea lord, whose name we don't even know, or Braavos itself, that made it the best candidate as a refuge for the last descendants of the last dragon lords? While men of wealth and power in the other cities may have offered shelter, there would almost certainly have been a quid pro quo. We can only speculate that perhaps it was the very secure and secretive nature of Bravos itself that made it ideal. The Sea Lord of Bravos seems to have been willing to host not only the Targaryen children, but also their Westerosi supporters in secrecy. And the why may also have been related to the history of the Iron Bank. We know that early in his reign, Aerys II owed a debt to the bank thanks to loans taken by his father, Jaehaerys II. Following Arius's rash comments about building an enormous fleet with which to bring the Titan to its proverbial knees, his hand, Tywin Lannister, had paid those debts with his own money, thus transferring all obligations and interest owed to himself. So perhaps the Iron Bank had designs upon replacing Tywin Lannister as financier to the Iron Throne and saw control of the Targaryen heirs as a way to achieve that. By the time of their flight, the alignment of House Lannister with the new King of Westeros would have been well known. Maybe the Bravosi sought a return of their influence over the Iron Throne and of the revenue that once went along with that. In any case, the Sea Lord of two eighty four a. c. gave the Targaryen refugees a house, likely in his own compound, to call home. This house was described in Daenerys' vision in The House of the Undying in Carth. She remembered those great wooden beams and the carved animal faces that adorned them, and there, outside the window, a lemon tree. The sight of it made her heart ache with longing. It is the house with the red door, the house in Bravos. The house with the red door, which symbolizes home for Danny, was nothing more than a comfortable stop in their exile for her older brother. Home for Viserys would always be Westeros, as we'll see. In Braavos, as comfortable as they were, they were exiles, living in another man's home, beholden to the sea lord for their residence, their clothing, their servants and food, and more than anything else, their safety. During the five years or so they spent in Bravos, one thing of note took place, though without the knowledge of either Viserys or his sister. At some point, Prince Oberyn Martell of Dorne visited the Sea Lord. While Oberyn's efforts to raise Dorne in support of Viserys had been subdued by his canny and cautious elder brother Doran, the secret pact that Oberyn forged with Willem Darry, with the Sea Lord as witness, was undoubtedly made with Doran's knowledge. Ten years or so later, the pact would come to light when Quentin Martell arrived in Slavers Bay bearing his suit to Daenerys. By the time Danny read the document Quentin gave her and described it to Sir Barriston, most of the principals would be dead. It was a secret pact made in Bravos when I was just a little girl. Sir Willem Darry signed for us, the man who spirited my brother and myself away from Dragonstone before the usurper's men could take us. Prince Oberyn Martell signed for Dorne with the Sea Lord of Bravos as witness. The alliance is to be sealed by a marriage, it says. In return for Dorne's help overthrowing the usurper, my brother Viserys is to take Prince Doran's daughter, Arianne, for his queen. So Oberyn Martell journeyed to Bravos from Dorne in secret to forge an alliance wherein Dorne's 50,000 spears would support Viserys in overthrowing Robert Baratheon. Likely, it was a combination of their family connections and Robert's alliance with House Lannister, who were held responsible for the deaths of Prince Cecilia and her children, that led to this position, paralleling the possibility that it was the same alliance that led to Viserys having the Sea Lord's support. It's noted about Braavos that, quote, Trees did not grow on Braavos, save in the courts and gardens of the mighty. The implication being that only people of wealth and influence could afford to import and cultivate trees. And so, when Daenerys recalls living in the house with the red door with a lemon tree outside her window, we can assume that this tree existed because she was living amongst the mighty. But the fact that lemon trees are shown on numerous occasions to be native to Dorne, makes us wonder if that particular tree could have been a gift for the sea lord, who was known to have exotic tastes and kept a menagerie, a symbol, perhaps, of the alliance with Dorne made with the support of Braavos, which makes the next momentous thing to happen in Braavos seem even more unfortunate. When Viserys was nearing the age of manhood, say 13 or so, Sir Willem Darry died, apparently of a wasting sickness. Danny remembers what happened next. After Sir Willem had died, the servants had stolen what little money they had left, and soon after they had been put out of the big house. Danny had cried when the red door closed behind them for ever. This memory of Danny's indicates one of two things: either the support of the Sea Lord was so fragile and possibly linked to Willem Darry personally that his death could lead to a withdrawal of support for the Targaryens, or, and much more likely, we think. Darry's death coincided roughly with the death of the Sea Lord himself. In a city whose leader is chosen rather than inherited, it's to be expected that a change in leadership would bring changes in policy at best and some amount of turmoil at worst. Years later, Arya Stark would observe the mounting tensions as the health of a different Sea Lord failed. When he is dead, there will be a choosing, and the knives will come out. That was the way of it in Bravos. In Westeros, a dead king was followed by his eldest son. But the Bravosi had no kings. And so, if the sea lord who supported Danny and Viserys died, it's entirely possible that, quote, the knives came out, and in the midst of that turmoil, these two children, who now had no adult protector, were turned out to fend for themselves. While this sort of thing may have been normal in Bravos, we think that the relatively unexpected turn of events may have been perceived very differently by Danny and Viserys. First, Danny, being younger, made a relatively simple correlation between two events that affected her directly, Sir Willem's death and getting turned out of the house with the red door. But for Viserys, nearly a man grown and scarred from a childhood of trauma, there may have been another, more frightening element the Knives. Their flight from Bravos would be their second time, fleeing into exile from what appeared to be a safe haven, though Danny could not recall the first. Viserys, though, would be well familiar with flights from danger, and we think it's not out of the question that he would ultimately attribute this latest one to the same cause as not only their flight from Dragonstone, but also that earlier one from King's Landing, ahead of the rebel armies. The will of the usurper, in fact, Danny's memories of that time support this interpretation. They had wandered since then, from Bravos to Mere, from Mere to Tyrosh, and on to Kohor and Volantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. Her brother would not allow it. The usurper's hired knives were close behind them, he insisted, though Danny had never seen one. Robert's hired knives are mentioned repeatedly in Danny's point of view by both her and Viserys, clearly a theme that has followed them both for years, though it's pointedly stated in that passage that Danny had never seen one. But in a Game of Thrones, when Robert gets news of Daenerys's marriage to Khal Drogo, he bemoans the advice that had led him to not send assassins after the two for all those years. Some pox-ridden Pentoshi cheesemonger had her brother and her walled up on his estate with pointy headed eunuchs all around them, and now he's handed them over to the Dothraki. I should have had them both killed years ago, when it was easy to get at them, but John was as bad as you. More fool I. I listened to him. And so it's just as pointedly noted that, on the advice of Lord John Arryn, Robert did not send any knives after Viserys during those years, making Viserys' later statement to Illyrio seem steeped in paranoia. His hired knives follow us everywhere. I am the last dragon, and he will not sleep easy while I live. But if we allow that perhaps the knives Viserys and Danny fled from in Braavos were related more to the regime change there than to a plot by Robert Baratheon, then we just might have the origins of Viserys' paranoia about hired assassins. Imagine a scenario where men with blades are fighting on account of a regime change. We've actually seen a very similar situation in A Game of Thrones, and we think there could be a very strong parallel. After Robert Baratheon dies, one could make the case that the knives came out in King's Landing. Not only did the Lannisters fight the Starks in the Red Keep, quickly overwhelming Ned's much smaller force, but there were two children who were bystanders to the violence. Sansa was a prisoner, safe from immediate harm in a tower room, but her sister Arya is found at her fencing lessons with Syrio Farrell. Syrio Pharrell, Arya's instructor, was at one time the first sword of Braavos. For nine years, he served a former sea lord as champion, his position ending only when that sea lord died. There aren't endless possibilities, and so we have to consider if perhaps Sirio was first sword when Viserys and Danny were in Braavos. Back in King's Landing, when Sir Meryn Trant and five Lannister guardsmen came for Arya, Sirio, his sword now sworn to House Stark, stood in their way. It says Serio stepped between them tapping his wooden sword lightly against his boot You will be stopping there are you men or dogs that you would threaten a child When the soldiers signaled their intent to take Arya over his dead body Serio took up a defensive position and told Arya to run Arya child he called out never looking never taking his eyes off the Lannisters We are done with dancing for the day best you're going now Run to your father. In our mind's eye, we can see a younger Syrio in the Sea Lord's palace when armed men came to take Viserys and Daenerys into custody. Remembering that possession of these two children might have been seen as a valuable asset for a prospective Sea Lord, or alternatively, as a threat by a different candidate. Assuming these men might not have had their best interests at heart, it's easy to see a parallel scene unfolding where Syrio held off the blades while Viserys and his sister fled. If the servants had already stolen away with whatever they could carry, demonstrating the same lack of loyalty the household at Dragonstone had shown in the face of Stannis' advance, the children would have been forced to flee the city with whatever small possessions were left to them. And it's easy to see how this scenario, or a similar one, would have inspired a fear of assassins in Viserys, who was, after all, still very young, and has demonstrated a tendency towards both reductionist thinking and paranoia. From that point on, we propose, alone, frightened, and suffering from post-traumatic stress, Viserys became very much his father's son, gripped by paranoia, and driven by grandiose ideas." They had wandered since then from Bravos to Mir, from Mir to Tyrosh, and on to Kohor and Valantis and Lys, never staying long in any one place. Her brother would not allow it. The usurper's hired knives were close behind them. He insisted, though Danny had never seen one. The ideal of home can be a compelling one. For Danny and many others, home could be found any place that one is safe and with family. For Viserys Targaryen, home meant King's Landing and Dragonstone and the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros all lost to him as a very young child. Children will always seek somewhere to place blame when tragedy strikes them, and for Viserys, the blame for the loss of his home was laid squarely at the doorstep of Robert Baratheon. During the eight years or so that he spent crisscrossing Essos from one free city to another, Viserys would blame Robert each time they were forced to flee in the night. And on the one hand, there might have been some basis for that paranoia, since Barristan would one day tell Daenerys, You are watched, as your brother was. Lord Varys reported every move Viserys made for years. Whilst I sat on the small council, I heard a hundred such reports. While spies aren't knives... To someone suffering from paranoia, the perception of being watched or followed could certainly lead to erratic behavior. Seen from the perspective of a child who was affected by this behavior, the tragic consequences are clear. Her whole life had been one long flight, it seemed. She had begun running in her mother's womb and never once stopped. How often had she and Viserys stolen away in the black of night, a bare step ahead of the usurper's hired knives. What we know about these years comes entirely from Danny's memories. She notes that quote, at first the magisters and Archons and merchant princes were pleased to welcome the last Targaryens to their homes and tables, but as the years passed and the usurper continued to sit upon the Iron Throne, doors closed and their lives grew meaner. During this time, Viserys, young as he was, tried to forge alliances and win allies. Danny recalls him feasting the captains of the Golden Company to no effect. They ate his food and heard his pleas and laughed at him. Danny had only been a little girl, but she remembered. The constant humiliation of rejection and dependence on the largesse of what Viserys would have seen as lesser men, he, of course, being the last dragon. Must have been a bitter pill to swallow for someone who clearly, by the time we see him on page, suffered from delusions of grandeur, among other things. But the final straw for Viserys' sanity seems to have been when they were forced to sell their mother's crown. Again, Danny recalls when Viserys sold their mother's crown, the last joy had gone from him, leaving only rage. The crown is mentioned numerous times in Danny's point of view. After selling off all their possessions, and finally coming to the end of the coin that the crown had brought them, Viserys became known as the Beggar King, a humiliating moniker that must have weighed upon his pride and sense of self. He saw himself as a dragon, last scion of a line of legendary dragon lords and kings. His birthright had been taken away from him, unfairly and without cause. Robert Baratheon deserved no more acknowledgement than to be called the usurper. His father's or brother's roles in the rebellion were forgotten, if he ever knew them. Years later, Danny would think of how much Viserys must have hated those years after their coin ran out. All those years running from city to city, one step ahead of the usurper's knives, pleading for help from archons and princes and magisters, buying our food with flattery. He must have known how they mocked him. Small wonder he turned so angry and bitter. In the end, it had driven him mad. So the knives are mentioned again, which must have been Viserys's common refrain whenever they were forced to move on, having exhausted the hospitality of some lord or magister. In Carth, Danny attributes her brother's madness to their exile and endless humiliation. Though this is well before she meets Barristan Selmy and hears, for the first time, that her father was called the Mad King long before Robert Baratheon came on the scene, and of the apparent streak of madness that runs in her family. It must be said that during those years of exile, Viserys kept his sister close and relatively safe, and while it would appear on the surface that he was doing something noble or motivated by family loyalty in doing so, Danny recalls a distinct lack of tender feeling, telling Jorah Mormont, I was alone for a long time, Jorah, all alone but for my brother. I was such a small, scared thing. Viserys should have protected me, but instead he hurt me and scared me worse. He shouldn't have done that. He wasn't just my brother. He was my king. Why did the gods make kings and queens if not to protect the ones who can't protect themselves? Viserys is shown, in her memory, to have been cruel and vindictive. His rage was frequently directed at Danny herself for their mother's death for her failure to be born soon enough to be Rhaegar's bride, for wishing she was somewhere else or someone else, for being scared, and almost certainly for being a burden upon him. Far more perceptive than her brother, Danny would come to realize that he had been, quote, stupid and vicious, and yet, it says, sometimes she missed him all the same. Not the cruel, weak man he had become by the end, but the brother who would sometimes let her creep into his bed, the boy who told her tales of the Seven Kingdoms and talked of how much better their lives would be once he claimed his crown. These small moments of comfort stand out in Danny's memories because she had little else to sustain her. In her very first chapter, she thinks that she had always expected to be married to Viserys once she came of age. Being born too late for Rhaegar meant that she was of the right age for her other brother, and, quote, the line must be kept pure, Viserys had told her a thousand times. Theirs was the king's blood, the golden blood of old Valyria, the blood of the dragon. Dragons did not mate with the beasts of the field, and Targaryens did not mingle their blood with that of lesser men. And so, very early on, we're shown why Viserys took such care to keep his sister safe not out of any tender feeling after all, but so that one day when he returned to his rightful place as the Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, he could marry her and propagate the royal line of House Targaryen in purity. Given this sense of privilege and ownership even, and his inclusion of his sister in that tiny circle of arrogance and over-inflated rhetoric about king's blood and dragons, how hard it must have been for him when he realized that she was his last bargaining chip, and that in order to achieve his dream, he'd have to stand in that circle utterly alone, the last of his kind. In Viserys Targaryen's 21st year, fate brought him to the manse of Magister Illyrio Mopatis in Pentos. Fate might have worn the face of a eunuch in King's Landing, to be sure, but for all Viserys knew, he had finally found a friend, an ally who would assist him in making the most momentous transaction of his life, the one that would finally bring him home. Because it turned out the beggar king had that one final treasure he could sell after all. In his sister's first point of view chapter in A Game of Thrones, the 13-year-old Daenerys thinks about her lifelong expectation of marrying her brother... In spite of which, since arriving in Pentos, Viserys had, quote, schemed to sell her to a stranger, a barbarian. And so, in our next segment, we'll look at the events from A Game of Thrones, when we finally see Viserys Targaryen on page, and how he spent the final months of his short and tragic life. Single Valyrian king seeks war leader of savage, uncommitted army with an appetite for conquest likes Twilight Walks on the Prairie, dragons, and the color lilac. Looking for short-term engagement to rain devastation and revenge on his enemies, must offer at least 10,000 mounted men, the ability to cause terror, and a willingness to rape and pillage freely. Baratheon and Blackfyre loyalists need not apply. All candidates, please direct CV to King Viserys of the House Targaryen, third of his name, King of the Andals and the Rhoynar and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and Protector of the Realm, in care of Magister Illyrio Mopatis of the Free City of Pentos. We go home with an army, sweet sister. With Khal Drogo's army. That is how we go home. And if you must wed him and bed him for that, you will. He smiled at her. I'd let his whole Kalasar fuck you if need be, sweet sister. All 40,000 men and their horses, too, if that was what it took to get my army. Our introduction to Viserys in story comes in Danny's first point of view chapter as she prepares to attend the banquet where she'll be presented to Kal Drogo. As he instructs his sister on her attire, Viserys is described as, quote, a gaunt young man with nervous hands and a feverish look in his pale lilac eyes. He tells her she must look like a princess for this occasion, and she nervously wonders if she even remembers what that's like and what their host in Pentos wants from them. Viserys thinks he knows what their host wants, the gratitude of a king, In the first few paragraphs of the chapter, we have little idea what the politics are, but we know this young man is some kind of exile who seeks to regain a lost throne. We also get a strong sense that he's unstable. His eyes are feverish, and then his sister thinks this. She knew better than to question her brother when he wove his webs of dream. His anger was a terrible thing when roused. Viserys called it waking the dragon. And even as she has that thought, Viserys is criticizing her appearance, and then in an extremely proprietary way, he touches her breast and twists her nipple, likely not for the first time, and definitely not for the last, threatening her. You will not fail me tonight. If you do, it will go hard for you. You don't want to wake the dragon, do you? And Daenerys, at this point, seems quite meek and acquiesces. Viserys, it says, quote, touched her hair. Almost with affection, and tells her, When they write the history of my reign, sweet sister, they'll say it began tonight. Remembering that this is from Danny's own point of view, that almost is heartrending, especially when we learn their backstory and that these two are really all each other has in the world. In terms of knowing what Illyria wanted from them, it took a long time, both within and without the narrative, before we could start to piece all that together. One thing that seems clear is that Viserys' plight as an exile and reputation as the Beggar King paved the way for people to use him. Step up Illyrio Mopatis and Varys the Spider. In their early conversation overheard by Arya in King's Landing, the two plotters talk of war and whether to hasten or delay their plans. And as a reminder, we go into great depth about these plots in our Blackfire episode number 25. The theory goes that the pair wanted a Dothraki invasion to coincide with the Stark-Lannister conflict, which, in tandem, would undermine Westerosi defenses. Then they could swoop in with so-called Aegon, who would look like a savior, quote, come from across the sea to bind up the wounds of bleeding Westeros. Whatever the truth of the Blackfire theory, Hagon's invasion would contrast positively with that of Viserys Targaryen and his horde of raping and pillaging savages. So the notion that Varys and Illyrio were using Viserys in such a manner seems like a fair assertion. Viserys, however disenfranchised, still had some kind of figurehead value as a Targaryen prince. But his desperation attracted the plotting of Illyrio Mopatis, a man Jorah Mormont would call both greedy and devious. Recall that Viserys had been humiliated by the Golden Company when seeking their support. If we imagine how sore and prickly he was on the inside after his exile, it's plain to see that humiliation, especially over social status, was one of this character's biggest triggers. And among many such humiliations, the meeting with the Golden Company must have scarred him, leaving him desperate to find other allies. Being both unfortunate and a fool to boot, Viserys was short of potential allies, allowing schemers to try and use him, as they did. Illyrio, we'll see, has the gift of flattery and excels at making obsequious remarks to Viserys, designed to flatter his outsized ego. We could just imagine Viserys' ecstasy at learning that he could earn the large and ferocious army that Illyrio told him he deserved. The price would appear to be steep, though. His own sister would have to marry the Dothraki warlord in order to seal the deal, considering that Viserys had so often told Danny that, quote, dragons do not mate with the beasts of the field and Targaryens do not mingle their blood with that of lesser men. It might have come as a blow to his worldview to make this bargain. As for Danny herself, in A Dance with Dragons, Illyrio tells Tyrion, Viserys lusted for his father's throne, but he lusted for Daenerys too and was loath to give her up. The night before the princess wed, he tried to steal into her bed, insisting that if he could not have her hand, he would claim her maidenhead. So considering that Viserys would have raped his sister because he felt entitled to her maidenhead, it's clear that the only price he recognized in this bargain was its cost to his own sense of entitlement. He didn't truly care about Danny. In Viserys's Game of Thrones, the pieces only mattered as they stood in relation to him. And the lure of home and promise of revenge mattered all too much to Viserys. Danny remembered him telling her that one day they would get everything that had been taken from them back. In her memory, it says sometimes his hands shook when he talked about it. And also, Viserys lived for that day. And in that first point of view chapter, we hear explicitly what price Viserys would be willing to pay to achieve that dream. The quote we opened with. I'd let his whole Calisar fuck you if need be, sweet sister, all 40,000 men and their horses too, if that's what it took to get my army. Though so considering the physical and verbal abuse that he leveled at Daenerys in her first chapter alone, it's a wonder that she maintained any sense of loyalty to him, and certainly no surprise that, given the opportunity for the first time in her life to act independently of her brother, Danny did so. Once married to Caldrogo, Danny was able to be her own person in a way she had never had the opportunity to do before. Always in her life, it seems, she had to be wary of waking the dragon, a phrase mentioned often enough with respect to her brother's temper that we can be sure it was an ongoing theme between them. Now at last she could find a way to be important in her own right. Viserys underestimated the Dothraki from the start. Far from being ignorant savages whom he could use as pawns, the Dothraki would not be told what to do from the outset. It was ingrained in their very culture. Jorah Mormont would explain to Danny, "'The Dothraki look on these things differently than we do in the West. I've told him as much, as Illyrio told him, but your brother does not listen.' The horse lords are no traitors. Viserys thinks he sold you, and now he wants his price. Yet, Caldrogo would say he had you as a gift. He will give Viserys a gift in return, yes, in his own time. You do not demand a gift, not of a call. You do not demand anything of a call. Illyrio put it more succinctly to Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons, telling him, Dothraki neither buy nor sell. Say, rather, that her brother Viserys gave her to Drogo to win the Kyle's friendship. A vain young man and greedy. And when Tyrion replied that Viserys, quote, sounds like an utter fool, Illyrio's simple answer was, Viserys is Mad Ares's son. Just so. But in spite of this, Sir Jorah Mormont swore his sword to him in Pentos, the same night the deal with Drogo was struck. Having agreed to sell his sister, Viserys began to chafe at any delay in collecting the reward he saw as his. Failing to understand the nature of the transaction he had made, he began to speak of his army. His utter scorn for the Dothraki and their culture is evident when he tells Jorah and Illyrio, I piss on Dothraki omens. An early indication of Jorah's opinion of Viserys would come when he cautioned him to be patient with Khal Drogo. A lesser man may beg a favor from the Kal, but must never presume to berate him. A slip of the tongue, to be sure, but it's pretty clear at this point that anyone with knowledge of both Drogo and Viserys would likely come to the conclusion that Viserys was indeed the lesser man. Except for Viserys himself, who replied... Guard your tongue, Mormont, or I'll have it out. I am no lesser man. I am the rightful lord of the Seven Kingdoms. The dragon does not beg. And this statement puts us in mind of Tywin Lannister telling Joffrey in A Storm of Swords, Ares also felt the need to remind men that he was king, and he was passing fond of ripping tongues out as well. You could ask Sir Eil Payne about that, though you'll get no reply. Mad Ares's son, indeed. And that particular pair of statements brings us back to a question we asked earlier. How much was Viserys aware of his father's behavior in those early years of his life? Considering that his model for how a king must behave would have been Ares, and based on his reaction to being questioned, it seems like we could conclude he absorbed quite a bit. But Danny herself was unimpressed by Viserys' rhetoric, thinking, There are no more dragons, as she observed her brother, foreshadowing the thought she would have about him in the last moments of his life. But the chapter goes on to tell about her dragon dream that night, which featured Viserys and epitomizes the fear his abuse caused in her. Here's the passage. Viserys was hitting her, hurting her. She was naked, clumsy with fear. She ran from him, but her body seemed thick and ungainly. He struck her again. She stumbled and fell. "'You woke the dragon!' he screamed as he kicked her. "'You woke the dragon! You woke the dragon!' Her thighs were slick with blood. She closed her eyes and whimpered. As if in answer, there was a hideous ripping sound and the crackling of some great fire. When she looked again, Viserys was gone, Great columns of flame rose all around, and in the midst of them was the dragon. It turned its great head slowly. When its molten eyes found hers, she woke, shaking and covered with a fine sheen of sweat. She had never been so afraid. So this is the first in an ongoing series of dreams about dragons that we see Daenerys having, several of which include Viserys, probably no accident considering his constant threat of waking the dragon, but also likely connected to the apparent Targaryen tendency to have dragon dreams. Which brings us to another question about Viserys. Did he also experience dragon dreams? And could this have been what he referred to when he used that phrase, wake the dragon, to his sister? Let's consider the dragon dreamers of House Targaryen's past. Besides Danny, we know about Daenerys, the daughter of Aenar Targaryen, who foresaw the Doom, and Daron, son of Maekar, who foresaw the events of the tourney at Ashford Meadow and the death of Baylor Breakspear. But we also see Daemon II Blackfire, also known as John the Fiddler, discussing his dragon dreams with Dunk in The Mystery Night. And in that same book, Bloodraven would tell Dunk and young Aegon There have always been Targaryens who dreamed of things to come since long before the conquest. Then in A Feast for Crows, Daeron's brother, Maester Aemon Targaryen, would tell Sam Tarly about his dreams of dragons. I see them in my dreams, Sam. I see a red star bleeding in the sky. I still remember red. I see their shadows on the snow. Hear the crack of leathern wings. Feel their hot breath. My brothers dreamed of dragons, too, and their dreams killed them. Every one. So, it's stated that among Maekar's sons, both Arion and Aegon also had these dreams, which led to their deaths. We know that Arion died after drinking wildfire in a vain attempt to be reborn as a dragon. And we know that Aegon, Viserys' great-grandfather four times over, died in a fire at Summerhall after a vain attempt to hatch dragon eggs. Aemon's statement indicates that these deaths were directly related to dreams about dragons. In light of all this, we've wondered if Ares's plot with the pyromancers was related to dreams. It's said that, like Arion, bright fire before him, Ares thought the fire would transform him, that he would rise again, reborn as a dragon, and turn all his enemies to ash. If this was related to dreaming, and we think there's a fair chance it was. We start to have a trend of madness or instability as a good indicator of who was experiencing some of these dreams. Arion, Ares, John the Fiddler, and Teron can all be said to have been unstable or weak at best, dangerously manic at worst. Consider what Barristan would tell Danny about the dual nature of Targaryen sanity. The gods flip a coin every time a Targaryen is born. We can't say for sure whether these dreams might have caused madness in the more unstable members of the family or whether the dreams came with the madness, though we tend to think it would be the former. However, we can say for sure that Viserys Targaryen exhibited a grab bag of mental health symptoms, including paranoia and egocentric worldview, lack of empathy... Grandiose sense of self and delusions of grandeur, many of which he shared with relatives whom we know or speculate to have experienced dragon dreams, including his father, the so-called Mad King. So could Viserys have been experiencing these dreams? We'd say he absolutely could have, and in fact, go one further. Just as John the Fiddler dreamed of a dragon hatching at white walls and misinterpreted it as himself, so could Viserys have been dreaming of a vengeful dragon waking and taking back what it had lost, and interpreted it as a prophetic dream about himself. But John, or Damon, interpreted his dream incorrectly. The dragon that hatched at White Walls was young Egg, the future Egg on the Fifth. What if the dragon that woke in Viserys's dreams wasn't him after all, but his sister Daenerys? Considering that her arc, during A Game of Thrones, has to do with her empowerment, which in the end comes at Viserys' expense, just as Aegon's hatching came at Daemon's expense, we think this is a very possible interpretation. So, as we said, following Dany's marriage to Khal Drogo, which included more than a little of Viserys threatening her with his anger if she failed to please her new husband and jeopardized his bargain... She actually began to come into her own. As they approached the Dothraki Sea, Sir Jorah would tell her, you are learning to talk like a queen, Daenerys. Danny, for her part, tried to avoid Viserys during this journey. He was utterly miserable, struggling to master the Dothraki saddle and as much a fish out of water as it was possible to be. She thinks he ought never have come. Magister Illyrio had urged him to wait in Pentos, had offered him the hospitality of his manse, but Viserys would have none of it. He would stay with Drogo until the debt had been paid, until he had the crown he had been promised. And if he tries to cheat me, he'll learn to his sorrow what it means to wake the dragon, Viserys had vowed, laying a hand on his borrowed sword. Illyrio had blinked at that and wished him good fortune. And so here we're strongly reminded of Circe forbidding Robert to fight in the melee at the Hand's tourney. Try to command a king what not to do, it seems, and he'll do the exact opposite. Was Illyrio actually using this type of crude reverse psychology on Viserys? Or was the consequence of his words simply an accident? We think, for Illyrio's part, that keeping Viserys safe for the time being might have actually been his goal. For once Viserys was out of his immediate control, Illyrio's plot became the victim of a dangerously out-of-control pawn. Whatever the intent, it can't be denied that Illyrio's attempts to make Viserys stay in Pentos had the opposite effect. But a khalasar is a dangerous place for a man who doesn't understand the Dothraki for starters danny's status there now exceeded his own and a man who had no prowess at arms who struggled to ride a horse and who failed to show proper respect to dothraki social customs could garner no respect for the dothraki respect was earned not owed based upon one's birth when danny commanded her attendants to stay behind so she could ride into the grassland alone and experience its beauty her brother was caught up in that group. Being ordered to do anything by Jora Mormont and his sister's cause predictably enraged him. He raced to follow her, arriving screaming his rage, peppered with insults. You dare? You give commands to me? To me? Have you forgotten who you are? Look at you! Look at you! You do not command the dragon. Do you understand? I am the Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. I will not hear orders from some horse lord slut. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? So never mind that it was he who had sold her to the horse lord. Throughout all of this, he was shaking her. And at last he fell back upon his old trick of grabbing her breast to gain her submission. But on this occasion, something was different. Danny pushed him away. Like any abuser, when their victim fights back, he became enraged. Danny, it says, knew, quote, he would hurt her now and badly, but she had forgotten about the inversion of their social status in this new life of theirs and about her cuss. It was Jogo with his whip who caught Viserys around the throat and offered to kill him for the crime of laying his hands upon her. Though Danny declined, Quaro thought maybe Viserys should lose an ear, quote, to teach him respect. Again it fell to Danny to protect her brother, all the while she was observing what a pitiful thing he was. It says he had always been a pitiful thing. Why had she never seen that before? There was a hollow place inside her where her fear had been. Jorah Mormont, it turns out, had tried to protect Viserys from himself, but of course no one tells the dragon what to do, except perhaps another dragon. The scene continues. Take his horse, Danny commanded Sir Jorah. The Ceres gaped at her. He could not believe what he was hearing, nor could Danny quite believe what she was saying. Yet the words came: "Let my brother walk behind us back to the Kalisar. Among the Dothraki, the man who does not ride was no man at all—the lowest of the low, without honor or pride. Let everyone see him as he is." When Viserys realized that his sister's defiance hadn't been curbed by his threats and anger, he commanded Jorah to hurt her. Hit her, Mormont! Hurt her! Your king commands it! Kill these Dothraki dogs and teach her! So, shades of Joffrey there, commanding his knights to hit Sansa Stark. Unlike Meryn Trant, Boris Blount, and the others, though, Jorah refused, for one thing, Jora knew for a certainty that any attempt on his part to obey those orders would mean certain death for him and Viserys. But after he took the horse and rode away with Daenerys, his scorn for Viserys became plain. Danny's thoughts and words to Jora are laden with double meaning. Now that it was over, it seemed like some strange dream that she had dreamed. Sir Jora, do you think he'll be so angry when he gets back? She shivered. I woke the dragon, didn't I? Jorah replied, quote, your brother Rhaegar was the last dragon, and he died on the trident. Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. But let's back up to Danny's statement about waking the dragon, couched in language about dreams, no less. In that moment, she did wake the dragon. As her own dreams would continue to indicate, the dragon that awoke on the Dothraki Sea was her if, as we suspect, Viserys was having similar dreams, then here's the moment that it becomes clear that his interpretation was dead wrong, just as Daemon II Second Blackfyres had been at Whitewall's. Danny realizes that not only would her brother make a terrible king, but that he was no leader of men. She admits that she's known this for a long time and acknowledges that he will never bring her back to Westeros. When Viserys, pitiful and ragged, found his way back to the Khalasar that night, the Dothraki laughed and named him Khal mar the Sorefoot King. Now, this name, as insulting as it is, is highly appropriate for Viserys, the beggar king who had spent his youth running from one city to another in Essos, running away from the truth and always in search of an impossible dream. But the sorefoot king soon became known as Kalregat, the cart king, when Drogo offered him a place riding in a cart the next day. Thinking it was a gesture of apology or respect, Viserys accepted. It says, in his stubborn ignorance, he had not even known he was being mocked. The carts were for eunuchs, cripples, women giving birth, the very young and the very old. That won him yet another name, Kalregat, the cart king. While Danny would eventually convince Drogo to allow Viserys to ride with them again, the name and the shame stuck. Utterly lacking in self awareness, Viserys' scorn for the savages continued unabated, and when they arrived at Ves Dothrak, it was clear that his patience was reaching a breaking point. He was clearly very close to demanding his army from Drogo, in spite of Danny's reassurances and Jorah's best advice that you do not demand things from a call. Their first night at Vaes Dothrak, Dany sought to make peace with her brother by presenting him with a fine set of Dothraki-inspired clothing meant to make him feel more comfortable in the heat and perhaps stand out less. Things started badly when her handmaid Doria used a poor choice of words and told Viserys that his sister had commanded him to join her for supper. In the scene that followed, all of Viserys' rage and vitriol came spewing forth. He hated the Dothraki and their way of life. He was humiliated and confused by his sister's integration with the Khalasar and her sudden and unexpected autonomy. He insulted her, the Dothraki, and her gifts. And when he forgot himself and laid his hands upon her arm, she reacted in self-defense. It says... She reached out with her other hand and grabbed the first thing she touched, the belt she'd hoped to give him, a heavy chain of ornate bronze medallions. She swung it with all her strength. It caught him full in the face. Viserys let go of her. Blood ran down his cheek where the edge of one of the medallions had sliced it open. "'You are the one who forgets himself,' Danny said to him. "'Didn't you learn anything that day in the grass?' Leave me now before I summon my Kaz to drag you out, and pray that Khal Drogo does not hear of this, or he will cut open your belly and feed you your own entrails. While Viserys threatens that she will, quote, rue this day, he leaves her tent seething, and we're left with the feeling that he's been driven to a precipice from which he may not be able to turn back. He must have felt the same sense of doom because when next we hear of him, it's at the feast following Danny's presentation to the Dosh Killeen. Danny asks Jorah where her absent brother is and is told he'd gone to the market in search of wine and men. It seems that Viserys had decided that he would recruit his own men there in Vaisdothrak. When Danny wondered how he intended to pay for them, Jora revealed that he had caught Viserys attempting to steal her dragon eggs. Up until this moment, it had never been mentioned that Viserys had any interest whatsoever in Danny's eggs, which is slightly strange for a man who Danny remembered as loving stories and lore about dragons and who was so fond of dragon metaphors. Danny was shocked that her brother would try to steal from her. And while the reader hasn't yet heard the story of him attempting to sneak into her room and take her maidenhead the night before her wedding to Drogo, it comes as no surprise to us, in retrospect, that he would do these things. The eggs were valuable and a gift from Illyrio. Not only could he make use of them, but he very likely saw them as his due, since Drogo, to his mind, had failed to make good upon his promises." Danny seemed inclined to agree that Viserys should have the eggs. Her brother, she reminded Jorah, was all the family she had. My mother died giving me birth and my father and my brother Rhaegar even before that. I would never have known so much as their names if Viserys had not been there to tell me. He was the only one left, the only one. He's all I have. But as the discussion turned to Danny's place in the councilor and her son's future, Viserys appeared in the feasting hall. Somewhat drunk and utterly uncaring of the Dothraki prohibition on weapons in their sacred city, he was wearing his sword and demanding a place at the feast. When Drogo indicated that Kalragat was welcome to sit at the back of the room with the boys, old men, and cripples, Viserys drew his sword in spite of Ser Jorah's efforts to contain him. Advancing on Daenerys, he proceeded to threaten her and her unborn child, all while waving his sword around to the dismay and outrage of the assembled Dothraki. Now, instead of the eggs, which Danny, in her panic, offered him freely if he would just put his sword away, he was determined to take her back as well, claiming Drogo had broken their bond. In the panic, Danny managed to remain calm and translate what was happening for Khal Drogo. Once he understood, Drogo spoke, and Danny translated, He says, You shall have a splendid golden crown that men shall tremble to behold. It says then, Viserys smiled and lowered his sword. That was the saddest thing, the thing that tore at her afterward, the way he smiled. That was all I wanted, he said. What was promised? Poor Viserys. Unable to change, unable to escape the trauma that had followed him his entire life, unable to see the truth of what he had become and what he was doing, Danny's heart broke for him, but she stood next to her husband while his blood riders seized, the man who had been her brother. When Drogo began to heat the golden medallions from his belt over the open fire, it says, Viserys began to scream the high, wordless scream of the coward facing death. He kicked and twisted, whimpered like a dog, and wept like a child. Daenerys didn't look away, as her husband gave her brother the crown he had been promised. And up next, in our final section, we'll look at Viserys' death. His continuing role in the story, including the impact of his early exit, and how his role as antagonist played out in his sister's arc. At the last, Viserys looked at her. Sister, please, Danny, tell them, make them, sweet sister. When the gold was half-melted and starting to run, Drogo reached into the flames, snatched out the pot. "'Crown!' he roared, "'Here a crown, for Kart King!' and upended the pot over the head of the man who had been her brother. The sound Viserys Targaryen made when that hideous iron helmet covered his face was like nothing human. His feet hammered a frantic beat against the dirt floor, slowed, stopped. Thick globs of molten gold dripped down onto his chest, setting the scarlet silk to smoldering. Yet, no drop of blood was spilled. He was no dragon, Danny thought, curiously calm. Fire cannot kill a dragon. When molten gold is poured onto Viserys Targaryen's head in a Game of Thrones, we're told he was no dragon. Fire cannot kill a dragon. Danny's thoughts emasculate him in our minds and underline what a sad, misguided creature Viserys was in the end. The Beggar King would die begging for help from his young sister, who, observing his end, ultimately doubted his identity as a true Targaryen. This moment was pivotal in the Associ storyline, and so it's worth reflecting on Viserys' failings and what his character offered the story. Viserys brought a petulant cruelty to Daenerys' arc, which is one largely concerned with her growth from powerless puppet into slavery-smashing, dragon-wielding super queen. Although Daenerys faces a wide range of uncertainties early on, readers truly root for her only when there's a clear-cut antagonist creating conflict. As her brother, who has shared their tragic backstory of riches to rags, Viserys was a great choice as the antagonist. He's physically close to her, bound by blood, making his cruelty a betrayal of sorts, and his ambition inherently imposes her own best interests. If Daenerys is to return from rags to riches, and by that we mean seize the power, influence, and allies that she was denied at birth... There should be oppositional obstacles for her to overcome along the way that denote both internal and external changes. Early on, Viserys fulfills this role. It was the tension of his domineering personality that provided something for his sister to overcome and thus experience growth. The timing of his death was also measured to suit Danny's arc. At that point, her character was brimming with potential, and he had long been a fish out of water. Still, in his relatively short time on page, his antagonism and threats caused the reader to feel protective of Danny. This feeling of protection, purposefully cultivated by George, gets interesting when the erstwhile little girl lost begins roasting slavers alive. Viserys had once sold her like a slave too, which Jorah Mormont would point out to her discomfort. Her brother continues to affect her, just as he's affected our perception of her. In this sense, he was a perfect foil. He drowned in adversity while she triumphed, and we could trace their arcs, intertwining and diverging. In that moment when Danny's Dothraki cause prevent him from assaulting her on the Dothraki Sea, brother and sister look very different. She was barefoot, with oiled hair, wearing Dothraki riding leathers and a painted vest given her as a bride gift. She looked as though she belonged here. Viserys was soiled and stained in city silks and ringmail. And the quote signifies that Danny had integrated into the Dothraki, whereas Viserys thought he was above them, still wearing his traditional Western garb. In short, the essential contrast between them is that Danny was able to change while Viserys was not. His inability to change was his true downfall in the end, as he failed to adhere to a basic code of behavior on Dothraki sacred ground. Wielding a sword in Vase Dothrak was always going to end in disaster, and the fact that Viserys clearly created his own downfall here makes his story a tragedy in the literary sense. Although the fact that Viserys was heading down a one-way road with the Dothraki might seem obvious in hindsight, For many, it was still a huge surprise when he was seized by Drogo's blood riders and given his poetic golden crown. We as readers felt another shock along similar lines again in A Game of Thrones when Ned Stark was beheaded. In that instance, George thought it was too obvious of a story if Ned was the predictable hero, scaffolded together with predictable tropes and fantasy cliches. George wanted to subvert our expectations, cause surprise, and perhaps instill in the reader the sense that no character could hide safely behind their plot armor in this saga. We learned with a single sweep of a sword that protagonists in this story are as vulnerable as any other character. Well, we might consider Ned Stark, in hindsight, as a decoy protagonist. The story seemed centered on him to some extent, and then suddenly he was gone, and his children soon filled the void. And in some ways, we have a similar situation with Viserys. The audience was prepared for protracted antagonism, for him to become more villainous and defy Danny's ambition at every turn. But instead, and to all appearances, the story shed him like a snake discarding an old skin. One thing comparing Viserys and Ned tells us is that heroes and villains get the same treatment in this saga. George is not going around massacring our heroes to lend a story realism and then giving foes an easy break. In story terms, Viserys deserved to die. He had come onto unfamiliar ground, been slow to assimilate, and, like Ned, had been outmaneuvered. It's an even playing field, and it's very smart of the author to punish everyone equally. This might be a grim world, but it's one that readers know is being played fairly in this regard. And so we can compare Viserys and Ned and talk about how their demise engendered arcs of change for surrounding characters. But perhaps calling Viserys a decoy antagonist wouldn't be quite right. Rob filling Ned's boots as an honorable hero is a relatively clear-cut substitution, yet nobody really takes over for Viserys in Danny's story. There are certainly foes along the way, but no single villainous figure creeping in her shadow through the rest of her arc. Instead, slavery fills the void of the villain, which, as we said, is something Viserys subjected her to when he sold her to Drogo. As a villain, Viserys' character spoke to the reader of an overbearing, controlling, abusive family member, and his brand of torment and his petulant entitlement were relatable for a lot of people. This isn't the villainy of magic ice demons or an unflinching eight-foot monster, but of one who is lost, disenfranchised, angry, paranoid, and, underneath it all, frightened. As unforgivable as some of Viserys' behavior is, we shouldn't forget that George chose to make him vulnerable. The weight of Targaryen expectation is something Viserys struggled with, perhaps as his father did, and his tragic backstory highlights his vulnerability. In some ways, he's Cinderella in reverse, having sold his dead mother's crown to become the ragged beggar king. The scale of evil varies greatly with George's antagonists, but what elevates some characters are their vulnerabilities. When he wants to create villains who are all or mostly all evil, George withholds their backstory so that we feel less empathy, making them less relatable. When George revealed Viserys' vulnerabilities, he wanted us to understand why the character is the way he is, and perhaps for us to feel just a tiny bit of sympathy for the devil. It's not that we should forgive him. He is, after all, close to being alone in the world, yet can't result in directing his rage and bullying at the one person he should love and protect. But it does seem like he might be deserving of our empathy. And so, with his backstory, unfortunate temper, a tendency to madness and paranoia, his refusal to change, and his gruesome death, Viserys Targaryen ultimately became that tragic villain who's gone but not forgotten. For in spite of his sudden exit, Viserys made his mark, and he casts a shadow well into the greater story. Because Daenerys, as a character, remains isolated from Westeros and almost all the other Westerosi characters for much of the series so far, it will be Viserys' knowledge of their family and their homeland that she relies upon. Whatever his flaws, Viserys loved to tell his sister stories about Westeros, dragons, and the glories of House Targaryen, and these lessons are things she thinks of most often when he comes to her mind after his death. Danny and Viserys had shared their youth of tragedy, hardship, and exile, and also a hatred of the men Viserys alleged to have brought about their circumstances, the usurper and his dogs of House Lannister and Stark. While their temperaments appear to be quite different, they do share a yearning for power, for belonging, and for a reclaimed legacy, not to mention the burden of dynastic survival. Perhaps her driving ambitions and dramatic need to conquer were instilled in her by him to some extent as well. Daenerys will mourn for his instability and temperament, but also display a certain similarity to him at times. She is, after all, the blood of the dragon, and in that knowledge, can be quite fierce and imperious. And then, in A Dance of Dragons, we see Viserys' shadow loom even larger in the narrative when Quentin Martell arrives in Essos bearing his suit to Daenerys, a direct result of her brother's tragic death in Vaes By the time Quentin made his journey, all the signers of the pact had perished, and so too had Viserys, in complete ignorance of his bride waiting in Dorne. The tragic irony that Viserys spent so many years seeking a way home when there was a secret alliance waiting to be consummated is only exceeded by the fact that had Viserys kept his head around the Dothraki or just remained in Pentos, Quentin Martell might have never left Dorne and would still be alive. And even before Quentin's arrival in Marine, Danny had realized how flawed her brother was, thinking... He was a fool. If he had been wiser and more patient, it would be him sailing west to take the throne that was his by rights. How much more that applied when it was revealed that there was a princess and an army 50,000 strong waiting for him in Westeros, if only he had had the patience and wisdom to prove himself worthy of them. In the Arianne 1 sample chapter from The Winds of Winter and Spoilers Ahead, Princess Arianne asks Sir Damon Sand what Viserys was like. She imagines that he was beautiful, as his brother Rhaegar was, and wonders about the manner of his death. As was the case with her brother, Viserys' death had a huge impact on Arianne's arc. Her entire life and her relationship with her father were defined by the secret pact, yet she had no knowledge of it until after Viserys was dead and Quentin on his way to Daenerys. It's interesting that Arianne doesn't seem to realize that the Targaryens were as much in the dark about the pact as she had been, as shown when she thinks, perhaps Daenerys realized that once her brother was crowned and wed to me, she would be doomed to spend the rest of her life sleeping in a tent and smelling like a horse. Arianne's words and thoughts about Daenerys give a huge insight into how Viserys' death might continue to affect Dany's life in new ways, when she finally makes her way to Westeros to claim the throne he once called his by right. Arianne asks Sir Damon, Why did Daenerys let it happen? The Ceres was her brother, all that remained of her own blood. The passage concludes with the following She is the mad king's daughter, the princess said. How do we know? So the brief exchange and the doubt it implies shows just how impossible it will be for Danny to control what people think they know about what happened in the Dothraki Sea. Few, if any, will care what kind of person Viserys was or what the mitigating circumstances were. Most will judge her only by the outcome, and that might be one of Viserys Targaryen's biggest legacies to the story. In the final chapter of A Dance with Dragons, as she wanders alone in the Dothraki Sea, Danny dreams of her dead brother. He appears to her as he looked after his crowning by Drogo, and he is as bitter in death as he was in life. They have a conversation in which she attempts to explain and justify everything that happened to him, and while his arrogance and petulance still shine through, his final words to her encapsulate the purpose of her journey to this place, alone and isolated. Why did they give the dragon's eggs to you? They should have been mine! If I'd had a dragon, I would have taught the world the meaning of our words." By the end of that chapter, we can see clearly that Daenerys has remembered those words and connected with her Targaryen self, experiencing a second awakening of sorts in the Dothraki Sea and taking her arc in a direction in which we think the shadow of her brother will continue to loom large. In the end, Viserys will have served multiple purposes to the narrative, serving as the linchpin for years of Dornish plotting, heightening our sympathy for Daenerys by establishing her relationship to slavery as a key factor in her arc, being a continual voice of dissent inside his sister's head, and ultimately grounding her in her identity, as well as being the subject of the first in a string of unfavorable stories that will accompany the Dragon Queen to Westeros. In conclusion, we return to Viserys' similarity to Ned Stark. Much like the Stark patriarch who functioned as a decoy protagonist early on, but whose memory has been frequently invoked in the narrative since his early exit, so is Viserys Targaryen cast a long shadow. For a character who died well before the first book ended, and whom we only ever saw on page in decline. Viserys has remained present in the narrative right up until the end of A Dance with Dragons, in large part due to the nature of Danny's story and his off page connection to the Dorner Shark. Not bad for a petulant and paranoid prince who exited the story when it was just getting started. Thanks so much for joining me today, and we hope you've enjoyed our analysis of Viserys Targaryen. We'll be back soon with another episode, but now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. R. Martin for giving us sympathetic villains, and to Kevin McLeod, Chris Zabriskie, and Kai Angle for allowing us to use their music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Sincere thanks to Hortense of Ashai, Juna of House Aiko, Amber, Lenny, Sammy, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Tim, B Word, Girl with No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K., Marja the Mage, John H., Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, J.M., the Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrow Doe, Lord Sosa, and his faithful canine companion Theodin, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Direliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Daniel Redbeard, Direwolf, Jamie the Joint Slayer, Amber, History of Westeros, Heather, Hema Helminth, the Cell Sentinel, Catherine, Tree Girl, Carrie, Chris, Alex Tameo, Convenience or Death, David, half Halfhand, Amanda, Melinda, Chris, Alex, Faye, Sebastian, Jim McGeehan of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire, AJ, Arion, Greg, Brendan B. Fish, Steve, Zainab, Yvonne, Felix, Brian, Matt L., Michael M., Tanner, Iden, Dimitri B., Spentrails, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Oakenfist, Mary, Sam, Clerk Nasty of the North, Eric, Leah, Maddie, and Jessica, the Wolverine Knight, whose sigil is crushed Buckeye Nuts on a Maize Field, and Lady Louise of House Taylor, the Rainwatcher, Watcher, Desert Penguin of the Red Mountains of Dorne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioEsteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with another new episode. Bye for now.